All right, well, take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 10 with me. Well, we're very interested in qualifications, aren't we? So if you're applying for a job, your prospective employer will want to see your qualifications. Are you competent in Excel? Do you have experience in plumbing? What computer programming languages are you fluent in? Have you taught Latin before? There are qualifications for getting into college, qualifications for purchasing a home, qualifications for being an elder or a deacon in the church. Here's another question. What qualifications do you need in order to be worthy of compassion? So if you were to turn up at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church with a need, what conditions would you need to meet in order to receive mercy and compassion from us? Well, church, we're back in Luke's gospel this morning. Luke was a first-century physician who compiled a reliable historical narrative of the events surrounding the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we find ourselves this morning listening in on a conversation between Jesus and a Jewish lawyer, a conversation that has echoed down through history to us today. So follow along as I read Luke 10 starting in verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Three parts to our sermon today, a lawyer's heart, the Savior's story, and a disciple's posture. A lawyer's heart, the Savior's story, 
and a disciple's posture. So let's begin with the lawyer's heart. There in verse 25, Luke draws a backdrop for the conversation we're going to listen in on this morning. Uh, We can imagine Jesus is presumably teaching in an open space, and so a lawyer then stands up to ask him a question. Now, this isn't a lawyer like we would think of as a lawyer nowadays. This isn't somebody you go to to help you with your will. This is a scribe. This is a Jewish expert in the religious law, lawyer of Israel. And he has a question for Jesus. But before we get to his question, Luke gives us an eye into his heart. Luke tells us there in verse 25 that this lawyer is asking his question in order to put Jesus to the test. It seems he wants Jesus to trip up on his answer or say something that will discredit him or otherwise get him in trouble. And so it's that, with that motivation that he then asks, hey, Teacher, what, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, there's a question, right? An important inquiry from an important man to an important teacher. And if anyone is going to get Jesus to trip up, it's going to be this guy. So how does Jesus respond? Well, you know Jesus. As is his want, he, he answers the question with a question. Now, this man is an expert in the law of God. That's what he lives by. And so Jesus says in verse 26, what's written in the law? How do you read it? So if this man lives his life by the law of God, surely the law he lives his life by has an answer for that question. In a sense, it's like Jesus saying, you tell me, you're the expert. And so in verse 27, he does. He says, this is how he reads the law law of God. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. This is a summary Jesus himself used in his ministry. It's a great answer. Uh, Back in Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses spoke to Israel and told them to love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and might. In the passage Noah read for us earlier in Leviticus chapter 19, we read, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of our own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so this legal expert has an expert answer. He's dead on. And Jesus himself says that in verse 28. He says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now Jesus isn't teaching here that you can somehow earn God's approval by keeping the law. No one can do that. Now, the New Testament will go on to bear witness to the fact that the law can only condemn sinners, even the most religious of sinners. The law can only condemn. It cannot save. It's powerful, but it's not powerful to save. And so Jesus is not saying, well, great answer. You can work your way to heaven. You're doing a good job. I mean, just keep on at this. Now, I think what he's affirming in the man is the man's summary of the law. 
See, God's law is not just about do's and don'ts. It has plenty of do's and don'ts. Just read uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy. But the law of God reflects the character of God. A God who loves and desires his people to love him above all other gods. So this lawyer's summary of the law as a command to love God and others is just wonderfully correct. Love is at the heart of the law of God. But we're not done with Luke's insight into this man's heart. We've already seen he has good theology. He has the right ideas, but does he have the right heart? There in verse 29, the conversation continues, and Luke tells us that this lawyer isn't done, and he has a follow-up for Jesus. And why does he have a follow-up for Jesus? Because he's desiring to justify himself. So he's asked Jesus this question. He's received an answer, which he himself provided. But he's not, he's not satisfied. Jesus says, love God, love neighbor. And then what does he say? Do this and you will live. It seems simple enough, but, but this lawyer is following up by asking, okay, I know all this. I know I should do all this, but to what extent do I need to do all this? He's looking for some parameters. At his heart level, it seems he's trying to fit Jesus' command into something manageable, something achievable, something perhaps even minimal. And his question then makes all this too clear. And who is my neighbor, Jesus? Jesus, I get it. You and I both know this. We both know God calls us in his law to love him and to love others. But like, how much? To what extent? What, what qualifications does it take to be my neighbor and to merit my love? And you've got to hand it to the lawyer. I mean, Jesus' you know, affirmation of the summary of the law is what has a huge scope. It's, it's demanding. It's all-consuming. Because God doesn't just demand a section of you. By referencing the heart and the soul and the strength and the mind, and then saying all of those things, God is saying, I want all of you. Serve me and love me with all you are. Love me. Love those made in my image. Love your neighbor. That, that's so consuming. That's so all-consuming. I mean, certainly there are, there are limits, right? It's time for this lawyer to do what lawyers do, to find loopholes in the commandment of God. It would make sense, perhaps, for him to think, well, this is limited to my Jewish brothers and sisters, right? Uh, they deserve my mercy. What, who else is my neighbor? See, this lawyer has the right doctrine, but his heart is self-justifying, and therefore he's far from God. He wants technical compliance to the law. God wants his heart. Ligon Duncan, in a sermon on this text, says, Jesus' concern is that while the lawyer can give the correct answer, he is not, in fact, doing what he says. Jesus says it will take more than right answers to inherit eternal life. Friends, let us beware of having right thoughts about God without giving him our hearts. I mean, if we love him, 
and we don't exhibit that love, both to him and to others, our hearts do not belong to him. J.C. Ryle has said, clear knowledge of the head when accompanied by, in, by determined impenitence of the heart is a most dangerous state of soul. Friend, do you know theology really well? Can you debate it up with the best of them? Are you an avid blog reader? Do you keep up with the latest tweets on the heresies and threats confronting the church? Those are not bad things. But beware, lest those things become a facade for you, making it look like you love God when what you really love is being right. This is a danger right now for the church. Let us beware. And that leads us to the Savior's story. Because Jesus sees this lawyer's heart and he gives him a story to expose his heart and to show the heart of a true disciple. So look at verse 30. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So Jerusalem to Jericho is about a 17-mile trip. It was going to be downhill through rocky terrain. There were many caves in that area, making it a great spot for robbers and bandits to hide and then pounce on travelers and then retreat to safety. And so with that setting, Jesus presents this traveler who is attacked and he's beaten to within an inch of his life. The robbers, they strip him, they beat him, they leave him. And on that treacherous road then, he lies alone. Until verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. I think it's interesting that Jesus says, by chance. It's like in the flow of the story, he's, he's leading his readers and, and us, his hearers, to, to say, think, aha, a, a helper has arrived. And great, it's a priest. It's a religious person. It's a good person. Nice ending to the story. Verse 31 continues, And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. There are different speculations as to why this priest did this. A good idea is that perhaps he didn't want to become ceremonially unclean by touching what could be a dead body. But then again, he's going to Jericho. He's not going to Jerusalem, so... He's not going to the temple. Maybe that's not a good speculation. I don't know. I think another one is that he's afraid. I mean, those same robbers are going to pounce again. And you see this guy laying in the road. They're, they're bound to be close by. But the fact is, Jesus doesn't give us an answer because that's not the point. What's the point is that the priest just doesn't help. But the priest isn't the final option. Look at verse 32. So likewise, a Levite. Uh, so a Levite was not a priest, probably a temple worker of sorts. He wasn't part of the, the family of Aaron. Maybe he'll help. 
But Jesus says, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now, at this point in the story, you know, you're looking for probably three parts. And I think the lawyer probably has an idea where Jesus is going to go with this story. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. The next person is just going to be a regular Israelite, right? And he's not going to be a priest. And yeah, Jesus will get his jab in on religious authorities. It'll be clear. The priest doesn't help. The semi-priest doesn't help. Oh, just a lowly Israelite. The lowly Israelite helps. But that's not where Jesus goes. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. Samaritan. Leon Morris writes, The audience would have expected a priest and a Levite to be followed by an Israelite layman. They would almost certainly now be anticipating an anti-clerical twist to the story. Jesus' introduction of the Samaritan was thus devastating. Samaritans were hated by Jews. Now, Jesus is about to introduce a Samaritan as the exemplary hero of his parable. This is offensive, Jesus. This is shocking. Verse 33. And when he saw him, he had compassion. What Jesus will show now is that the good Samaritan, in his love for his neighbor, is compassionate active and costly in his care, in his love. Jesus says he had compassion for the man. His heart went out to the man. And that wasn't it. It's not like he felt badly and the sight sort of disturbed him in his dreams for a couple nights after that, but he eventually got over it. No, he had compassion that led to action. Jesus says he went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. This is costly action. We can imagine this man ripping off parts of his own clothing to administer bandaging to the beaten man. We see him pouring oil. The oil was to soothe the pain. We see him administering wine to disinfect the wound. And when that's all done, he sets him on his own animal. That means he no longer has a ride. He walks this man to the inn. This is costly, sacrificial neighbor love. This is love that doesn't say, who is my neighbor? This is love that says, that man needs a neighbor. Well, Samaritan brings the injured man to an inn. He takes care of him throughout the night. Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii. He gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. Whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Two denarii would have been sufficient for the man to have room and board at the inn for the next 24 days. See, the lawyer is looking for a loophole. But the good Samaritan is looking for a neighbor. Jesus presents someone the lawyer would be repelled by, and he shows him this man's not looking for loopholes. He's taking the opportunity he has in front of him to love his neighbor. And when he loves his neighbor, he does it thoroughly. He doesn't look for ways to get out of the burden. Even when he needs to leave and continue his journey, he promises he's going to come back and he's going to pay for whatever costs will have been incurred in the meantime. His neighbor love is a lot like Jesus' love. It's compassionate. 
It's active. It's costly. And so what's the point? Well, we arrive at our last point, and that's a disciple's posture. Look at verse 36. Jesus is done with the parable. So he says to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Again, he's making the lawyer answer the question. And the lawyer says, the one who showed him mercy. You realize he doesn't say the Samaritan? One author points out how he can't even bear saying the word Samaritan at this point. But he knows the right answer. Again, he has the right answer. But does he have the right heart yet? We don't know. Jesus says, you go and you do this. You do likewise. Because the lawyer's heart posture will be evidenced by if he goes and he actually does this. And he evidences his love for the least of his neighbors. See, he had the wrong question back in verse 29. As one commentator puts it, we are not to ask who our neighbor is, we are to be a neighbor. You're not asking who needs my help, you're asking who can I help? You see the little flip in the question? It's a heart flip. It's a heart posture change. This lawyer is looking from, for some sort of limit, some sort of parameter on his love. He's looking for some parameters, but Jesus just busts the parameters wide open, and he shows how the mercy of God is parameterless. The lawyer would seek to justify himself and show himself to be righteous within a certain framework of laws, but Jesus says God's after something deeper. He's after a heart of love devoted to him and to neighbor. And so a true disciple of Jesus will be one who does not have a set of qualifications for those who deserve his compassion. Now, perhaps at this point, you feel kind of a little burdened by all this. I mean, I think we've all turned blind eyes to those who had need right in front of us. Maybe our rationale was more valid than not, but it was rationale. Perhaps helping was just going to take too much of our energy at that time, too much of our time. We need to cancel things. Maybe it was just a sticky situation. There were strings attached. It was best not to be involved at all. And certainly, don't hear me wrong, compassion does not mean doing whatever anyone in need asks you to do for them. Compassion does not equal total compliance to any request. But it is compassion nonetheless. And this kind of heart, this heart of compassion, is not optional for a Christian. And yet, and yet we can see our hearts so often caught up in this self-justification and trying to find the minimal obedience we need to show we're solid Christians. The lawyer in this passage doesn't have the right heart posture, yes. But do we? Well, Christian, remember... Remember that Jesus has not come in Luke's gospel merely to tell people you should be more loving. No, Jesus has come to show the ultimate love himself and to lay down his life and bear in his wounds the judgment of God against the sin of his people. 
So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you will forever misunderstand Jesus and you will forever misunderstand his teaching if you simply see him as teaching more morality, good way of living, even compassion. No, Jesus came to back up his words with action. He came to live a perfect life and then die the death sinners like you and me deserve. Jesus died on the cross under the judgment of God so you and I, if we'll turn in repentance and, and trust in him, will never be judged by God. And so friends, see in Jesus the utmost compassion. Find new life in him. If you have questions about that, we'd love to talk to you about that. But Christian brothers and sisters, when we think about being compassionate, we, we need to start with this love, the love we've been shown by God in Christ. See, each one of us had no qualifications whatsoever to present to God, no credentials to show him we're worthy of your love. All we could show him was a record of sin and need. And he took care of both. It's that love that drives us then to be disciples of Christ who have a heart posture like the Good Samaritan. See, if we read this parable and leave today thinking, yeah, I mean, I'm guilty of this. And I'm glad Jesus loved me when I was unlovable. All right, lunch. And we never actually think about putting this into practice with our neighbors. Do we really know the love of God at all for us? Are we, aren't we just being like that lawyer who, who can say all the right stuff and leave with his heart unchanged? See, the gospel is all the grace of God. We do nothing. But the gospel gives us new life in which we do lots of things. And we love God and we love neighbor. We do nothing to gain salvation. But as those who are saved and given new life, we do lots of things. So if this neighbor love is not the posture of our hearts as Christians, I wonder if we've ever really experienced the love of God for us. So Christian, I want to assure you and put on the salve of the gospel to wearied hearts. But I don't want to deprive this passage of its punch Jesus is looking at his followers. He's looking at you and me, Christian. And he's calling us to a neighbor love that is not contingent or minimal or limited. He's calling us to radical compassion. His words to us are, you go and do likewise. That's what he's saying to us. The love we've experienced must, must be played out in the love others experience from us. So consider the question then that we started out with. In your heart, who is qualified to receive mercy from you? Here's an example. June is Pride Month for the LGBT community. The LGBT lifestyle we understand from God's scripture is contrary to his design. It's damaging to those made in his image and ultimately will bring condemnation. We do not apologize for holding those convictions. We hold them in love. But 
At the same time, that conviction about this lifestyle must not instill in us pride or anger or disgust towards our LGBT friends. Instead, if the truth Jesus is teaching here and if the truth of the gospel that we've been treated with such compassion in our sin and our need, if that really works itself down deep into our hearts and we remember the love of God towards us, our hearts should be burdened for these friends. Burdened with compassion for them. And we should pursue them and show neighbor love to them without hesitation as they engage us in our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our schools, as they increasingly do. Remember, compassion does not equal affirmation. But I think often the Christian church has conflated those two things so that there are really only two options for faithful Christians. Total affirmation or total condemnation. But what if there's another way? What if we're compassionate? What if we're compassionate messengers of the truth? What if we take steps towards our needy friends and not back away? What if we love like Jesus? That's just one example. But as individual Christians and as a church, this question of neighbor love must be one we consider and pray over continually. I wonder what you would think if we kind of had a a community group right here and we went around a circle. I wonder what would be your best guess as to who might feel most unloved or unwelcomed should they visit our church. I'm not saying we would just like actively say, go away, but somebody who would feel like, I... I don't feel like I'm welcome here. If we identify possible categories of people who would feel that way, what can we do to run towards them? Not away. I mean, if God had run away from us, where would we be? There's a lot we could apply from this passage, but in general, Christian, consider this week who it is around you who is not like you, who just really doesn't expect any sort of mercy from you. And pray how to show neighbor love to them. Perhaps as someone on the complete other end of the political spectrum. Perhaps as someone waving a rainbow flag. Perhaps as someone of a different class, making a different income, lower level of education, or higher. Perhaps as someone of a different nationality or ethnicity. Oh, you would never say it, but sometimes you think it. What a showcase of gospel love it would be to reach out to those people in mercy. John Bloom has written this. He says, if we ask with the lawyer, who is my neighbor, we may not like Jesus's answer. It may explode our dreams of love and community. Because instead of loving the neighbor we wanted the soulmate we would have chosen, Jesus may point us to the needy, different mess of a person in front of us, the one we feel like passing by and say, there, there's your neighbor. Church, are you up for that? Remember the love of God for you. May we as a church be characterized by neighbor love that is fueled by the love we've experienced in Christ. May we love others with the awe of Charles Wesley. 
when he just asked that question, can it be that even I should gain an interest in this Savior's blood? Oh, tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me. Let's pray. Lord, you have shown us flabbergasting mercy. And so we ask that it would grip our hearts to such an extent that no one will be beyond our compassionate reach. Lord, we pray for wisdom. We pray for right theology, but we pray mostly this morning for that right theology to be worked out in humble hearts. And we ask that you would do mighty things through the weak vessels at Loudoun Valley Baptist Church. Amen.